hello to all of our Climate Ready listeners. This is Alex Maroner along with Ingrid Dimbo. We are back after a long break between seasons. Ingrid and I are so glad to be back in front of the microphone for this episode and the many more to come. A lot's gone on since season two wrapped up, and while this isn't necessarily a show about current events, it's impossible not to take notice of the fact that we may finally be seeing a paradigm shift in conversations and visibility around climate change. Oh, I totally agree, Alex. Just look at the news cycle, a flurry of intense storms happening, international climate strikes, and more recently, the UN Secretary General's Climate Summit are making the terms climate change and increasingly climate crisis more mainstream. While we should consider this shift an overall win, you know, we also want to make sure that we try to stay solutions oriented in the ways that we think and act around climate change adaptation and mitigation. And in fact, that idea is baked into the title of this show. Our goal is to promote a society, a culture, and a planet that is climate ready. To give some examples of what this means, we're featuring a new segment this season. We're calling it Climate of Hope, and you'll hear it at the end of each episode after our main interview. Stay tuned for the end to find out more. With that, let's jump into the first episode of Season 3, where Paul Fleming of Microsoft will be joining us as we discuss the emerging roles of the private sector and big data in addressing climate change. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter using at ClimateReadyPod and to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy! Climate Ready is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an international members-based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de. Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water. All right. Today on the podcast, we're lucky enough to be joined by Paul Fleming coming to us from Seattle, Washington in the USA. Paul is the Corporate Water Program Manager for Microsoft, where he works to establish corporate-wide water stewardship goals and identify opportunities to utilize technology and support policies that foster innovative water management throughout society. Previously, Paul developed and directed the Seattle Public Utilities Climate Resiliency Group, and today we'll be having a conversation looking at the role of the private sector and technological innovation in climate adaptation. Thanks so much for joining us on Climate Ready, Paul. Great. Happy to be here. We can go ahead and start out with maybe the most obvious question, which would be, how did Microsoft, a technology company predominantly known for computers and software, how did they become interested in working on water? I'd say there's a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, while we're not a beverage company or an agricultural company, water is integral really to any company, if you think about it. Obviously, our offices and campuses require high quality, reliable, potable water. 
But our expansion into the cloud requires that we develop data centers that can support and provide the infrastructure necessary to offer cloud services to customers around the world. And those data centers utilize water for cooling purposes in particular, at, at least at this point in time. And so our use of water is growing as we look to expand our cloud offerings. So that, that's one reason, but I'd say another one is that as a company, I think we're trying to be very attuned to what are some of the key risks that are faced by society. And clearly water risk is uh, prominent in terms of those categories of risks. We all know about the work that the World Economic Forum does to assess global risks on an annual basis. And water is routinely up in the quadrant that I refer to as the there be dragons quadrant. It's yes. the <laughs> high risk or high likelihood, high impact. Yep. And so I think there, our engagement on this issue is, is driven by the recognition that water is a global risk and uh, it merits particular attention from the company. So the Microsoft cloud is really a, like a saturated cumulonimbus cloud, you know, <laughs> full of water, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it turns out that the the cloud our analysis we've done is it is a very efficient way to provide computing uh, mm -hmm. resources. We've done some work that looked at the energy and the carbon emissions in comparison to on-site computing, and it's much much more efficient. Mm -hmm. But you know, there is also a water component to that, and it's something we'll be looking at going forward as we explore how to try and decouple the resource use across the board from development and growth. Excellent. So, I mean, I think we'll talk a bunch more about Microsoft in, in particular, but kind of staying on this idea of risks and also um, something that plays into that a lot is uncertainty about future conditions. On this podcast, we do spend a lot of time talking about how various different groups, cities, governments, communities, companies, ecosystems can adjust and adapt and kind of manage these risks and uncertainties. And so I guess from your perspective, as someone who's working in the private sector, what do you see as the biggest challenges or maybe and maybe opportunities in kind of addressing these risks and uncertainties more broadly? Our mission at Microsoft is to enable every person and organization on the planet to achieve more. And so I'd say one of the big opportunities is, is really around partnerships and identifying organizations that we can work with to advance you know, whatever objectives we have. In the case of environmental and sustainability in water, that's very germane and, and relevant. Mm -hmm. So that's one opportunity. I also think that we're looking to explore and support the role that technology and particularly AI, artificial intelligence and data science can play in helping to address challenges like climate change, as well as issues around biodiversity, agriculture and water. So we have a, a program, a five year, $50 million commitment <laughs> called AI for Earth which is intended to tap into that opportunity that we think exists to better utilize data science to harness the environmental science field that has really grown over the past several decades. And we're realizing that opportunity through, again, through partnerships. So we've got 388 or so grants that we've given 
to organizations, NGOs, startups, academia, governments that are working on four areas, climate change, water, agriculture, and biodiversity, and focus on enabling those organizations to use data science techniques to help them and enable them to go further and faster in their work on those four focus areas. Very cool. So it sounds like a pretty broad range of different projects from what I understand from the program. And and tell me if I have this wrong, this is pretty global. And I'm wondering if there have been any challenges or have you, are there any insight in terms of applying this AI for Earth across different regions? I can comment a little bit on that. The AI for Earth program is sort of a sister program. So I'm not, it's not one that I'm deep Mm -hmm. in on a daily basis. So yeah, it is definitely a global program. And there's participants in the program, I think, in all continents except for Antarctica. I think some of the challenges may be associated with capacity. And I think that's true. I, I would imagine this is just pontificating a little bit, but that's true across the board with respect to data science, right? That there needs to be some degree of, of capacity in order to take advantage of these emergent tools. Yeah, big data will require data <laughs> in order to function. Yeah. Yeah. Big yeah. data requires smaller data. <laughs> yeah, yeah and, and some, you know, some capacity within, you know, pers- people capacity, right? To yeah, true. know how to harness that. It's interesting because we supported a study to look at the issue of AI going forward as a potential tool, not the tool, but a tool to help drive decarbonization And it identified that it could play a really important role in helping to drive both economic output as well as decarbonization. But one of the things they found is that the deployment and utilization of those sort of techniques needs to be conscious of the fact that there is a gap between certain parts of the world that are at the forefront of these sort of technologies, you know, North America, Europe, East Asia, and other parts that aren't. And in order to ensure that there's not a widening gap, there needs to be some focus on building out the capacity and the skills in people um, in order to take advantage of this emergent technology. I think recognizing that it's like one tool in a toolbox, because I think a lot of times we're like, oh, this one thing is going to solve everything. And it's like, no, (laughs) no, it's not. It may be important. It may be an important component and allow us to do things that we haven't been able to do before and maybe scale them. Um, in different ways, but definitely it takes a lot of different approaches. There's, yeah, I mean, there's no deus ex machina here, right? We can't endow all of our or place all of our hopes on something to come rescue us through some sort of magic wand. At, at the same time, while there are certainly areas where we lack data, environmental data, we we also, in some cases, are just inundated with yep. data, and and mm-hmm. it's only growing. Right. I often say that in, in some ways there's maybe a fog of data and what we need are more lighthouses to help better navigate that data. And I think that AI and, and machine learning and data science techniques can serve in some ways as a lighthouse. But as to your point, they're, they're not magical ones, but they're tools that like any tool needs to be used appropriately and deployed appropriately. You know, you don't use a sledgehammer when you need a ball peen. And it may also very well may require additional 
skills in people in order to really fully leverage those tools. Well, I think you've basically perfectly summed up um, this next question I was going to get to, but um, what do you see as the role of technology and water management? And I think you've really kind of touched on that, the role of um, AI and big data and, and how they are uh, a tool, uh, but not a solution in and of itself. And, and maybe more of the effort uh, or just as much should be focused on training those to people to use those tools. Is that right? I come from a water background. I don't come from a tech background. So I'm, I'm not afflicted necessarily with technophilia. <laughs> like I come from a utility background. So I, I certainly think about that. And, you know, I think that technology could certainly play a role in helping to enable smarter, more dynamic, more responsive management of utility systems that might be able to attune them to real-time conditions, um, yeah. as well as serve as a way to couple kind of traditional expansion of utility systems through pumps and pipes and to look at the role that harnessing the massive amounts of data that utilities typically gather to enable smarter management and, and maybe potentially avoid or downsize large capital expansions. Totally. So I want to kind of, again, just not uh, totally switch gears here, but I noticed that recently, or at least I think since last year, maybe you have been engaged with a larger group of private sector uh, actors called CEO Water Mandate, um, which for those listeners who don't know is a UN Global Compact initiative that works to mobilize the business community and specifically business leaders on issues related to water and sanitation and also linking that into the sustainable development goals more broadly. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how Microsoft fits into this group and if there's anything you guys have been uh, working on so far. I, I know you're relatively new there, but I don't think we've yeah. had any other CEO water mandate companies on here yet. You know, we were attracted to joining the mandate because I think at the heart of it is the spirit of collective action directed towards advancing sustainable development goals, particularly sustainable development goal six. And yep. we are still relatively new. I think we're just coming into the beginning of our second year. You know, I think we're looking at the mandate as an opportunity to learn from other companies that have been more active uh, historically on water issues and to see how they think about water issues and see what we can learn from their, their engagement to date. We're also looking to the mandate to see how we can support this collaboration that I mentioned earlier and see if there's a way to, to harness the, you know, the 140 plus companies that have endorsed the mandate to see if there's ways to create partnerships to make co-investments around replenishment. And so that's an area of focus for us. Another one that is an emergent area for the mandate is looking at nature-based solutions. Okay. You know, we have a pretty long history of making investments in carbon offsets that often have sort of a nature-based focus and wanting to explore further how the investments that companies are making in the carbon space and the investments that companies are making in the water space can be aligned so that those two kind of streams of investments can be you know really leveraged and amplified it's really interesting to learn more about the water mandate even though microsoft is kind of early on in this year already playing a, a catalyzing role in bringing some of these groups together and providing opportunities for collaboration so 
maybe even taking a step further back in the, in the bigger picture, what do you see as the possible role of corporate stewardship in ensuring water security on a global scale? Well, it's you know, pretty heavy, I, I, pretty heavy question. Yeah, yeah. I, I come from a public sector background, and I guess this may be, or I mean, I may be um, idealistic, but I, I think that there very well could be a role where the private sector can strengthen partnerships with local water providers to help to secure water supply at a local level. And you know, I think you've seen that somewhat through some of the water fund work that groups like TNC have stood up to align corporate interests and public sector interests and mm-hmm. to identify, you know, what are some opportunities, what are some needs that need to be attended to in order to strengthen and enhance water security. I could see that being a really crucial role going forward. You know, I think there's often water systems are often underinvested. You know, they're undernourished in a way, and yet they're essential, right, to a functioning society. I mean, you have a somewhat kind of unique, I guess, perspective, having worked on both sides and, and seeing what as a utility, what you could have used potentially mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of corporate support yeah. or private sector support more broadly for the types of initiatives that you're working on. I mean, I feel like sometimes, not always necessarily, but there's more of maybe an adversarial component right. you know, to those two different groups, even though obviously businesses need water, um, <laughs> secure, stable, clean water supplies in order to function. Uh, same with cities and everyone, you know, so we all have the same kind of needs, but sometimes I feel like there's some tension there between those different groups. I mean, I think that the caricature would be that the private sector, which is usually the case with respect to water, right? It's mostly, I'm sorry, it's mostly public sector provided as opposed right. to like energy, which can be a mix. Yep. Caricatures that there's inefficient government that can't figure out how to manage a resource, and then the caricature of the private sector is that it's, you know, rapacious and yep. um, doesn't really care about what's happening, right? And one, I think that that's clearly an exaggeration, and, and two, it's not going to help solve its problems. I mean, I think I could really imagine a, a role going forward where the private sector sees an opportunity to bolster and support, again, you know, water security through partnerships with the provider, the water provider, to help ensure that the vulnerabilities that that provider sees are addressed. We just have one more question for you before we wrap up. And I was wondering, from your perspective, at least, what are some of the biggest challenges as well as opportunities that you see in managing water over the next 10 or 20 years? Well, you know, I, climate change is maybe a, a little bit further out, but I think that that's obviously like a, a huge challenge. That challenge will vary geographically based on, you know, what's projected to happen in the water cycle, but also will vary depending upon the capacity of the local water provider. Those who have greater capacity, be it financial, technological, or just skills, are in a better position to manage than those we don't, right? And so that's just a huge challenge. And, you know, I think a related one is that we still have a major access challenge. You know, access to a safe source of supply is still, to this day, a major challenge for society, right? So 
how to close that gap is probably the primary challenge. And how to do that in a way where we probably really need to think about and are clearly thinking about the traditional ways of providing supply through large centralized systems. A challenge there is how do we think through and complement that approach with other strategies that either need to be pursued in lieu of these traditional centralized systems or pursued in tandem as a hybrid approach. I think that's a real challenge in terms of like the business model. How do you structure and build out systems that are sustainable financially and environmentally Mm. that provide the access? And, you know, I, I think we really need to look really hard at what those models are going forward because it clearly isn't working now using the traditional central large centralized system model as the only way to do that. Right. I'll just add personally, kind of as we're concluding that it's, I find it really encouraging that some corporations, definitely not all, but those, you know, like Microsoft that have really been driving innovation for decades have pivoted a little bit to say, okay, we have all this technology, we've been using it to provide a service to our customers and to our to our shareholders and all that, but we can also use it for the for the greater good. And so, especially when you're driven by leadership, such as Bill Gates, who takes it upon himself to address some of the biggest challenges of our days, like climate change, and say, we have the technology, we have the tools, and again, it might require some training uh, and some capacity building, but we have the tools to address some of these challenges and we see that as part of our responsibility to do so. Mm-hmm. I'm really um, encouraged yeah. by what I hear. Yeah. yeah. You know, people talk about opportunity here. And of course, there are a ton of risks, of course, with respect to climate change. But I- I'm really intrigued about the responsibility part as well. But how do you couple opportunity with responsibility? And mm-hmm. um, I Kind of what you're you're talking about here, and that's the really interesting sort of intersection before us here as a society, right? So I'm I'm excited to explore that in this company where I am right now. Yeah, yeah when when you guys uh, figure all of that out, Paul, uh, yeah, we'll, right. we'll have you back on the on the pod <laughs> <laughs> yeah. once you've solved you. it all. Nobel Peace Prize winner Paul Fleming. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we got to got to do this. You know, it's, we haven't touched on kind of the technology side of things previously, so it's a it's a learning area for me. It's certainly not <laughs> my background. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time today, Paul. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for asking me. All right, thanks, Paul. Bye bye. really enjoyed our conversation with Paul, Alex. As someone who is not particularly tech savvy, it was really fascinating to hear more about big data and how it might be used by utilities and even more generally as a tool in our adaptation and mitigation work. It's certainly not a silver bullet to solve all of our problems, of course. And, you know, I mean, he was honest as well in that the biggest gap right now might be in our capacity and training to harness all of the data that is out there. I'll borrow his phrase to make myself sound more insightful here. While it's totally true that in many situations and regions, data are scarce, but often we have a wealth of data, a fog of data, especially when it comes to water utilities, and what we really need are more lighthouses. 
AI can likely fill out that role. We also touched briefly on the role of private sector corporations and environmental stewardship. Microsoft is funding hundreds of projects globally as part of its AI for Earth program, and I'm really curious to see what will come of all of that because I think it's really an evolving project. I'm also interested in the work that's being done by groups like the CEO Water Mandate, which Paul talked about. You know, I think corporations have a huge role in both contributing to and addressing climate change, and I really like the way that Paul framed it in terms of, you know, coupling responsibility with opportunity. So, you know, it was a bit different to focus on the private sector this week, but I really hope, you know, maybe later this season or next season we can kind of revisit this topic because I think there's a lot of different directions um, that we can go in. Before we wrap up, you'll be hearing the debut installment of our Climate of Hope segments. Throughout the season, we'll hear voices from across the globe bringing up issues from local to global. We're featuring perspectives from a younger generation here. They'll be sharing a personal look at climate change topics that really resonate with them and the actions being taken to give them hope. Today we'll hear from Noreen Anisha, an Agua Research Fellow and current PhD student at Oregon State University. Take a listen and enjoy. I'm Noreen and I come from Bangladesh, one of the most climate vulnerable countries in the world. Bangladesh has one of the densest river systems in the world, and our economy, agriculture, livelihoods, natural disaster, cultural behavior, Everything is highly influenced by our water resources. That is why I was motivated to study water resources engineering in my undergraduate level. The more I worked in water-related projects, the more I realized that most of the problems in the water sectors are some way or the other induced or exacerbated by the impacts of climate change. And that has far-fetched impact on our national and local economy on our food security, rural communities, people's health, and even on countries' internal migration pattern. The climate change impacts on the freshwater system has already affected the rural coastal communities and biodiversity in the many parts of the country. Not just that climate change has impacts on the environment, it also has impacts on the sociocultural dynamics where the poor and the marginalized communities suffer the most. But what gives me hope is that climate change adaptation is making us talk about sustainable choices, making us reevaluate the old-fashioned development norms, and making us look at the things as a holistic system. Small island countries and countries like Bangladesh are speaking up and introducing policies for climate mitigation and also negotiating greenhouse gas emission mitigation with other countries. The fact that this fight against climate change is bringing all of us together Working as citizen of one planet and not just one country gives me a lot of hope. That's all for this episode of the Climate Ready Podcast. Thanks again to our earlier guest, Paul Fleming, and to Noreen Anisha for sharing her Climate of Hope story. Until next time, everyone. The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.